Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. In January, University of California philosophy professor Andy Lamy wrote an article for Quillette whose title, The Libertarian Case for Rejecting Meat Consumption, might seem to be a contradiction in terms. Libertarianism, after all, is commonly classified as a sub-branch of conservatism. And conservatives, by cultural stereotype at least, are supposed to disdain vegetarianism. But Lamy, who himself is a vegetarian, argues that this area of ethics is now somewhat fluid. He also approvingly profiles Michael Humer, a distinguished University of California academic who has authored what Lamy believes to be the first book-length case against meat written by a libertarian, a book called Dialogues on Ethical Vegetarianism. I recently spoke to Quillette author and University of California philosopher Andy Lamy over the phone about all aspects of vegetarianism, from the significance of Humer's new book, to the ethics of eating cows versus chickens versus clams, to his own pathway to a vegetarian lifestyle. Here are excerpts from our conversation. Andy, you and I first met each other in the late 1990s when we were working for what was widely considered a conservative Canadian newspaper called the National Post. It still exists. And from that vantage point, we were able to observe the conservative reaction to a whole bunch of issues, including the treatment of animals. After you left and you went on to your academic career, I actually had an experience with this because as an editor, I published the work of a conservative former speechwriter for George W. Bush. His name is Matthew Scully. He wrote what I think is an influential book about the treatment of animals. And I got quite a lot of pushback from some colleagues and even from some readers who didn't like the idea of a conservative publication, and this was on the opinion page of a conservative publication, publishing something that advocated in quite vigorous terms for the humane treatment of animals. Matthew Scully, his book was called Dominion. You're probably familiar with it. It drew some linkages between the principles contained in Christian tradition and the way he would expect modern people to treat animals and the natural kingdom more generally. Could you give people a summary of how conservatives view the whole issue of treating animals? Historically, the idea that we should improve the treatment of animals There has been a perspective among conservatives that this is, to use a contemporary term, it's like identity politics taken to a hyper extreme. You know, here are people speaking out against speciesism and a lot of conservatives have issues around how to address racism and things of that nature. So there is this association. If you think back to cookbooks published in the 70s, Diet for a Small Planet, there are some kind of hippie associations those become countercultural associations, and those set off triggers for a lot of conservatives. The cocktail napkin version of the conservative satire of progressives who are concerned with animal rights is that, you know, in San Francisco, dogs are going to be able to vote. And Yeah, yeah. 
And it's not just conservatives who say that. I remember there was once a left-wing blog, and they called themselves meat-eating leftists. And by disassociating themselves from animal issues, they were showing their tough-minded seriousness. But those reactions, I think, though, engage the issue at a low level of analysis. It's often knee-jerk. What's interesting about Scully, I think, and I think I remember the piece you published, I think maybe there was one about the seal hunt, if I recall correctly, that Scully wrote for the Post that I thought was very good. So Scully has his own sort of path into these issues, and he is a social conservative. And his argument is very religious, but you don't need to be a believer or share his faith to appreciate his argument. And I read and admired his book. The idea that there should be some restraint on our appetite and our capacity to wield power over vulnerable beings. So he sees parallels between the pro-life movement and the quote-unquote animal rights movement. Part of his disagreement with conservatives who engage in that cocktail napkin satire, there's just a degree of thoughtfulness that I find in his position and in the position of other conservatives who are now coming to these issues in a less knee-jerk way. There's the old saying, you know, indignation is doubt's first wave of defense. And he and other conservative intellectuals, I think, are increasingly getting past that. Well, so you identified Matthew Scully as a social conservative, which is important for the discussion that we're going to have, because your article focused not just on conservatives, but on a particular branch of conservatives. But I want to just go back to Scully's frame of reference, because within, of course, the Christian tradition, there is this idea that we should take care of those who are the least of God's creatures. That, of course, is understood to mean humans, but it's not a huge stretch to apply that to all sentient creatures, creatures that can feel pain, including animals. Was Scully considered a lone voice among social conservatives by drawing those connections? That's a good question. My impression of the reception of his book was that a lot of people... I had a friend email me who who was a bit of a conservative himself, and he said, something to the effect of, Scully has shown me that these issues need to be taken seriously. I recall a review by Fred Barnes, a prominent conservative journalist, I think in the Wall Street Journal, who said that the book, it was the best book he'd read all year. He was going to stop eating foie gras, if I recall correctly. And the American Conservative, a sort of paleoconservative publication, I think they did a cover story based on, it was an article by Scully. And then if you look on Amazon, there's a lot of positive reviews. So There's still a lot of conservative resistance, of course, but I I do think Scully was a turning point in these debates in that he showed something. I think this was true all along, but he, I think, demonstrated it, which is that this is an issue that people who otherwise disagree on political matters, sometimes quite passionately, can come together and agree on. I want to go back to what you said about the pro-life comparison. I think one of Scully's central passions is the abortion issue. He takes a conservative view on that issue. And so... If you look at the arguments on that side of the debate, this is not the only argument, but one of them has to do with the idea of vulnerability, in particular, a vulnerability to pain on the part of fetuses. Now, you know, this view has all the familiar controversial elements that you and I, our listeners, will all be familiar with. But if we just take out that element, right, well, that's obviously true of animals as well. So what you have in the case of Scully is somebody kind of, in my mind, sort of fearlessly asking, okay, what are the ultimate ramifications of my view when I just take it to the very end, when I follow it all the way to the bitter end without worrying about how I'm going to be perceived or anything like that? And you wind up with 
he deliberately avoids the terminology of rights. It's more about, I think, mercy in his framework. And, and that's how he gets from A to B. And avoiding a rights-based discourse, I think, is a politically savvy move, because at least during that period, and I think still during this period, it sort of sets off alarm sensors among conservatives, the idea that, oh, you're creating one more set of rights. I actually agree with that. So I use the language of animal rights in my piece because it's a kind of shorthand. In my more academic writing, I prefer the term animal protection because what distinguishes views that are often labeled animal rights is that some do literally endorse the idea of animal rights. But what they tend to have in common is this idea that we need to improve our treatment of animals. And you can get there in a bunch of different ways with or without actually literally employing the idea of rights. So I share this view that you're describing because one of the things that sometimes happens is we get bogged down into debates about the nature of rights, arcane questions of the foundations of rights, when really it seems that this debate is significant on a more practical level that doesn't really require any particular rights-based framework. I'm sure you've also observed some of the conflicting responses you get from ordinary people when these issues are raised, because the same people who will eat meat several times a day, they will also just go bananas on social media if they see a picture of some rich guy who's killed a zebra, or it was some dentist, I think, who like had to go into hiding because he posed with a, I think it was a black rhino or something like that. Yeah. Have you done any thinking about just how completely incoherent we are when it comes to this issue? I mean, there is an obvious contradiction there. So what explains it, and I think Michael Humer actually touches on this, and it's a, I think part of what's going on there is we're, we're socialized into eating meat from an early age. You know, we're creatures of society, and, and that penetrates very deeply, whereas something like hunting, especially exotic animals, we're not socialized into that. That creates the possibility to view it in a, in a different way. So one way to resolve that contradiction would just be to say, fine, we don't care about any animals. And, and that would be consistent. But I think if my, if my choice were a consistent cruelty and an inconsistent, to use Scully's term, mercy for animals, I would actually favor the inconsistent uh, mercy. But of course, best of all, I think would be a more consistent, humane attitude. A century ago, or certainly a century and a half ago, the majority of Americans lived on farms. And they had everyday familiarity with animal husbandry and the birth of animals, the, the slaughter of animals, the butchering of animals. Of course, that's changed. Some critics have said that there's a certain sentimentality that has creeped into the way we think about animals. So uh, on one hand, we're completely insulated from the industrial killing of animals. On the other hand, we're also very sentimental when we see images of, of animals and we respond maybe in an effusive way. So as far as the charge of sentimentalism goes, I think what's really going on is those critics ultimately reject the case for animal rights. Scully does a really good job pointing out a lot of sentimentalism on the other side of the issue. So a lot of writing about hunting, for example, is just filled with treckle and schmaltz about how, and then I killed the animal and I appreciate it more and I'm a better person now. It's like, give me a break. So both sides, I think, can kind of get bogged down in accusations of sentimentalism directed at the other side. And there is probably maybe some sentimentalism on both sides. But the historical changing nature of our relationship, I think those critics assume that that's why this new view is arising. But it seems to me there's a better explanation. And of course, this is tendentious. 
But the argument for the pro-animal view strikes me as much stronger than the traditional view justifying our old habits, our old attitudes, our old practices. So I think it's kind of a red herring to get into stuff about sentimentality or changing historical circumstances. I think everything hinges on which side has the better argument. And we get bogged down in these side issues, in my experience, as a kind of substitute for the real heart of the matter, which is addressing the moral standing and taking that question as an argument. There are right now other cultures where eating meat is simply not part of the daily or even weekly routine. And I'm thinking of some parts of India where vegetarian cuisine is mainstream cuisine. What are the common elements in those societies where vegetarianism is a mainstream baseline cultural practice? Well, my sense is that it's usually religiously motivated. There's stories about Jain monks wearing masks or veils so they don't inhale insects and stuff like that. Like the ancient Pythagoreans didn't eat animals because they had these views about reincarnation. So it's a pretty happy coincidence if you're a vegetarian and you can go to these, these restaurants. And I've met people from India and, you know, when they find out that a Western person is vegetarian, they feel uh, a connection. But of course, I think they're ultimately coming from very different starting points. So you're talking about a religious starting point, which leads you to a, a humane way of eating. Uh, could you share a little bit about your own pathway, how you came to be a vegetarian? And I'm, I'm not sure, are you a vegan as well? I, I would say I'm about 98% vegan at this point. So I took a philosophy class when I was undergraduate. I signed up for a class in political philosophy. And the last third of the class wound up being on the moral standing of animals. When the professor, when she pre presented these arguments, maybe they either offended me or I thought they were just the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. I wore a leather jacket in those days, so I would get into long back and forths with her. I remember at one point saying, well, like, you know, you can't impose these views on people. And she said, well, forget about that for the time being. This isn't about legislating for others. It's about self-legislating. What are you going to do? So the arguments basically persuaded me, but, you know, that didn't change my behavior at first. So there was this strange, I guess, six-year period of my life where I accepted these arguments but I didn't make any behavioral change. And in hindsight, I think maybe I was, part of me was afraid to. And then one day I was working for a newspaper in Ottawa, Canada, and thinking about my own political views during that time. And I thought, well, if I'm going to adopt strange political views, I might as well go whole hog and start thinking about vegetarianism. That's really sort of how it started for me. Again, I'm not vegetarian. feel guilty about it all the time, uh, among other sources of guilt. <laughs> But one one thing that's always struck me as weird is that there are people who get kind of like angry when they meet vegetarians. And I'm wondering if it's a, a defense mechanism. There's one guy in particular. He's a friend of mine. He's He's a religious Jew and he's married to an extremely religious Jew. His spouse is extremely focused on the laws of kashrut and when you can eat and what you can eat. And of course, Jewish dietary laws are, are not vegetarian. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so my friend announced to the world and to his wife that he was going to become a vegetarian. Being a vegetarian, by the way, made it much easier for him to abide by Jewish dietary law. But what was strange is that very, very religious Jews were like strangely hostile to this. And, and we were trying to figure it out. And the speculation was that they thought, well, there can only really be one system of morality here. And if you're adopting the rules of kashrut, it means that you shouldn't be privileging this vegetarian thing, even if they're not mutually exclusive. One thing that can sometimes happen in those kinds of cases is people may fear that 
in this case, the Jewish spouse comes home and says, I'm vegetarian, that can sometimes have associations of accepting a different foundation for morality, that this could be a sign that they're not fully on the team philosophically or theologically. But I actually, I, but as I, you know, my own view is the opposite. As I've said before, I think this idea is actually compatible with a wide variety of political, philosophical, religious views. The other, the other thing I think is maybe a little bit shallower is that people feel judged. People, I guess, feel like this aspect of life that is 90% of the time regarded as normal and just how we do things, then somebody comes along who doesn't do it, and it suddenly becomes a question in a way that it, that it wasn't before. And that, that can be a bit uncomfortable. And even like vegetarians even get that from vegans sometimes, you know, so and maybe there's somebody out there who can do that even with vegans. I'm not sure. So let's talk about the substance of your article, because your article was very specifically about libertarian thinkers and the treatment of animals. And it goes to, to my mind, one of the real problems with libertarianism as a systematic creed, because to take the abortion issue strong articulations of libertarianism can either militate very strongly in favor of abortion rights, if you focus on the rights of the mother, or the very same creed can militate strongly in favor of not permitting abortion, if you focus on the fetus. And it all comes down to the same question that the abortion debate always comes down to, which is, at what point of gestation does a human unit have life? And so libertarianism is of no help, except to the extent that whoever proclaims themselves a libertarian is usually very strongly on one side or the other. Could you tell me a little bit about what the specific history of libertarian thought is in regard to the treatment of animals? So in some ways, it's sort of surprising that libertarianism is as widely regarded as as a conservative view as it is. It seems like a contingency of history. Communists come along and they, they reject both property rights and traditional religion. So advocates of those two ideas form an alliance to resist them in the Cold War and other contexts. So libertarianism is in some ways is sort of an odd bedfellow for social conservatism in the Scully mold. One thing I think it does have in common, though, is that because there has been this history in the United States and elsewhere, of post 1960s social movements often wanting to address issues of injustice through enhanced government activity, then you get this, as I was saying before, this kind of reactionary attitude on the other side, which says, okay, these hippies who want to expand the scope of government, they're they're vegetarian. Okay, we're we're gonna have animal rights cookouts and stuff like that. So I would say since the 1960s, there has been on a popular level, this association of vegetarianism with the view that libertarianism, like other strands of modern conservatism, has traditionally opposed. Now, at the same time, you do have libertarian intellectuals. Robert Nozick is a good example of this. He wrote what was certainly from an academic point of view, the best work of libertarian philosophy. I teach that book myself, even though I am I'm not at all a uh, libertarian. And he was a vegetarian for a long time. He writes about the moral standing of animals in his book. So you have this kind of split on the one hand between some libertarian intellectuals and libertarians just in general. It's true, I should probably specify that Nozick, I think, was the exception. 
And you have other libertarian thinkers strongly criticizing everything to do with animal rights. So this guy, Tibor Mackin, he's a libertarian. He wrote a book called Putting Humans First, and he said something to the effect of animal rights is just a new excuse for excessive government regulation and things like that. So, so sometimes that opposition, I think, is consistent with at least one strand of libertarian thinking's first premises. These approaches to libertarianism, Ayn Rand is probably the best example, that are basically rooted on some kind of commitment to egoism and self-interest. And if you approach politics through that prism, then it's true, animals are going to be left out of the picture. They won't be subjects of serious moral concern. But as I tried to bring out, if that, if that is your view, then some human beings will also be left out. So to kind of finish the thought, it seems like libertarianism has seen people get this kind of fuzzy picture through popular culture and historical contingency where vegetarianism for, for some time was coded as left-wing. But thinkers like Nozick and now Humor show that what I think is the more accurate view that it's actually compatible with a range of views on politics. And for, I think for a reason that you mentioned that we were just talking about libertarianism and abortion. So I'm very happy to discuss limitations of libertarian theory all day, but you're right. It's kind of limited. It's only really about, it's a theory of justice about individuals and their relationship to the state and to settle questions like the abortion debate, you need a theory of so-called moral standing. So what are the entities that are subject of serious moral concern? That takes us out of political theory into the realm of ethics. So the animal issue is similar in that way. So if you see this from a pro-animal point of view, libertarians, conservatives, socialists, liberals, we all agree on some things, you know, beating up little kids is wrong. I can mention other banal examples. That's the level at which the pro-animal people, I think, and increasingly many libertarian thinkers see the animal issue and that's its rightful place. We've reached the halfway point in this Quillette podcast, and it's time for a short message from Blinkist. If you're the type of person who reads Quillette and listens to the Quillette podcast, you also might be the sort of person who reads a lot of books. But like me, you probably never have enough time to read quite as many as you'd like. And that's where Blinkist comes in. Open the Blinkist app on your phone, tablet, or browser, and suddenly you're able to read or listen to expert 15-minute summaries of popular nonfiction books. For one low price, you get unlimited access to the entire Blinkist library. There are 12 million people using Blinkist. For some users, it's the soundtrack to their daily slog through traffic. Others read Blinkist on the subway. In my case, I listen to Blinkist when I walk my dog, which usually takes about 15 minutes. That's one whole book. Go through the Blinkist catalog and you'll find all sorts of big brain books like Upheaval by Jared Diamond and Sapiens by Yuval Noel Harari. But they've also got those business books you see in airport swivel racks, not to mention the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels, and of course, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. In some cases, the Blinkist summary is just enough for me. Other times, I'm so interested that I go out and buy the book and read it cover to cover. Either way... Thanks to Blinkist, I know which books deserve my time most. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. 
That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free seven-day trial at 25% off. And now, back to our podcast. So the occasion on which you wrote this article was the publication of a new book. Could you go specifically to the significance of this publication? Humor's book, I think, is significant for two reasons. One is it addresses in a very accessible way many of the objections that commonly come up when people are asked to think about the moral status of animals in a systematic way. So that's something I think is valuable about it. It's a very short, readable book. And although it takes the form of a fictional dialogue, the arguments that it puts forward and addresses are ones that anybody who follows these debates will have heard at some point or another. So that significance, I think, is not confined to any particular political tradition. But then the second significance is, as I, as I tried to bring out, that humor is a proponent of a philosophical tradition with which, as we've been discussing, the animal rights view has not been widely associated. So in that way, I think he's a nice reminder that you can have buy-in from different traditions, including this one that is, that, and in some cases, even part of its own self, the self-understanding of some libertarians is of necessary hostility to the animal, pro-animal view. So I think the second way it's significant is that, to put it simply, he, he breaks a stereotype. If you go have dinner with, with Michael Humer, he's not going to take you to a yoga class afterwards. You know, he might take you to a gun range. Yeah, although I did check his photo, and like that photo didn't do anything to break the stereotypes. And <laughs> I mean, you began your piece with a quote. It's, I think it's fairly well known among both vegetarians and opponents of vegetarianism, where it's this essay Orwell was writing had nothing to do with vegetarianism. There's just this one point where Orwell goes off on this rant about some of the eccentric socialists who were hurting the movement. And in his his long list, there's a reference to vegetarianism. As you've emphasized, a big part of the pushback against vegetarianism is not about philosophy, it's about culture. Does it frustrate you as a philosopher, as an academic, the fate of vegetarianism kind of rests on like whether Beyonce becomes a vegetarian. And I remember uh, Djokovic, the, the tennis player, a few years ago, he went gluten-free and half the folks at my tennis club went gluten-free. And if he went on the Atkins diet, they'd probably do that too. In fact, I'm sure steak eating went up because Jordan Peterson announced he was on this weird all-steak diet. Is it frustrating that we live in this celebrity culture where you and I could have these discussions but ultimately, people make these kind of decisions on really superficial factors? Yeah, I think it is a little bit frustrating. I don't spend a lot of time angsting about this, but I wrote a book about the rights of refugees, and that also struck me as an issue where the question of how to treat refugees was often not debated purely in terms of merits, but in terms of associations that you know newcomers are changing and they're going to take our jobs or, or whatever the association happened to be. So... When I first kind of looked into an issue and saw that it can be it can be determined by questions that are not in any way really essential to the matter at hand, that did make me a bit depressed. So when I started looking into animal issues systematically and saw the same thing, again, it's it's sad, but it didn't strike me as a unique fact about the animal debate. And then you read studies about how the placement of foods in supermarkets or cafeterias, those tiny nudges can sometimes have a big impact and it seems to be people are responding to factors other than 
conscious, rational reflection. So it's not hard to get depressed when you look into how human beings in reality actually make decisions. But one way that this is actually not depressing to me, you even in this phone call have kind of said, you know, like, look, I do this, but I'm kind of not sure I feel guilty. So maybe there's not great arguments for whatnot. That reaction actually really encourages me. Like one of the most powerful associations a practice can have, especially one related to food, is where we just treat it as natural and part of a given order. And for thousands of years, people associated the question of eating meat that way. And it seems to me that one way the animal arguments have been effective is that they've shaken meat free from its place. Maybe this is a bit pretentious. Like it, it no longer has this natural place in the cosmic order. It's a choice. It's a decision. It's a political question. And now with the rise of in vitro meat, which will allow people, perhaps, we don't know the full story yet, but it seems possible it would allow people to keep the culture, the practice of literally eating meat, but taking the pain out of it, that's potentially a long-term trend that could could make a big difference. Well, there's nothing more delicious than the words uh, in vitro burger. <laughs> A&W, which, as you know, because you're from Canada, is, is a fast food chain here in Canada. They recently, well, maybe not so recently, their burger was called Beyond Meat. And I remember when it came out, I thought, no one's going to eat that. That's like soil and green or something. But it's actually been incredibly popular. And some of their restaurants haven't been able to keep it in stock. Just from a consumer point of view, I, you know, I was just on an airline website booking a ticket. And one of the first questions was like, do you want a vegetarian meal? Like that would have been unthinkable 20 years ago. Yeah. What are the statistics on it? Have you looked at the statistics? There are issues around measuring the number of vegetarians that hinge on how you define it. So one literal obvious way to define it is somebody who simply eats no meat, including no fish. If you define it in that narrow way, the numbers are pretty small. So I think in the United States where I live, depending on how the question is phrased, it's between one and maybe four or five percent at the upper end. It goes up when you break it down by age. It varies, of course, by country. I think both Germany and Israel, if I recall correctly, have a higher percentage of vegetarians. There's another way to define it, though, and that is by how the person thinks about these issues. And so you'll sometimes get people transitioning into vegetarianism. And so if you ask them, are you a vegetarian? They'll say yes. But you ask them what they ate yesterday and there might be some meat in there because they're going through a traditional phase or in, in some other way, their literal eating habits don't quite match the, the narrow definition. So if you use that slightly more open-ended definition, then it goes up a little bit. In my experience, it's getting easier and easier to be vegetarian or vegan. Airlines, you're right, are a, a very good example. A lot of academic conferences now will ask you. The Beyond Burger, I think, is a very significant development. I was an investor in the Beyond Burger when it first came out, and that was a wild ride. It was the biggest initial public offering of any American stock, if I recall correctly, since the 2008 financial crisis. There have been short sellers who bet against beyond. I think part of that is cultural. I think some of them just don't like, again, the associations. But their arrival of those kinds of products, they remind me of a famous passage in Adam Smith where he says something like, you know, we go to the butcher and expect him to provide our dinner, not out of his concern for our well-being, but out of his self-interest. 
people who are investing in beyond, some of them, many of them, most of them probably are meat eaters, but that's a product, like you say, it's at fast food chains down here in the States. I've gone to eat it myself. That is also another sign of how things are changing. I think especially for Generation Z or Generation Z as young people are called. Someone gave me a utilitarian argument for the type of meat they eat. And he said, well, I, I eat steak. I don't eat chicken because a single cow can provide hundreds of meals. Whereas when you kill a chicken, it's usually only one or two, which seemed at the time like a really weird argument, but kind of makes sense. Have you ever heard that sort of thing? I have. Yeah. And I've actually written about versions of that argument. So in my book, I have a chapter on what I call burger veganism, which is basically the view you just described. It doesn't always have utilitarian foundations, but it can. So if you think about the average weight of a steer, which can be up to 1,200 pounds, versus the average weight of a chicken, which can be six pounds, that's basically a ratio of, of 200 chickens to one cow in terms of how much meat it provides. So if you're socialized into meat eating from birth and you want to make some changes, I, I think that's actually a great change. Somebody who doesn't eat chicken or fish and occasionally has you know, a steak, I think they're, they're taking a really significant step. And the sheer number of animals that need to be killed to support that diet would be vastly smaller than, than the average omnivore diet. I'm just going to own the fact that this is like an anti-Hindu diet because you're basically saying we'll eat no animal except cows. <laughs> Although theoretically, if you genetically engineered like a 10,000 pound cow, that would actually lessen the overall suffering. Utilitarianism kind of breaks down when it comes to animal rights. And I think you acknowledge as much and uh, utilitarians such as Peter Singer have acknowledged as much because then you get into the question of like, well, we, should we be going out into the wild and saving animals that are fighting each other and causing each other pain. Has, has there been any serious and coherent utilitarian approach to the pain and suffering of animals? I think you put your finger on a genuine issue. Before criticizing utilitarianism, and I ultimately am not a utilitarian, but I think it has one very positive feature in that it is, it is able to include animals in the moral community, in the community of entities whose interest we should take seriously, it can do that because it says, well, you're a member of the moral community if you can experience pleasure or pain. And there are rival views, and I mentioned some in my piece, the whole social contract tradition, you know, can you engage a hypothetical contracts? And no, you can't. So we got to either exclude you or make up ultimately very unbelievable stories about why a contract carrying account can include the example of the I gave was the seriously mentally disabled. There's just something very kind of clean and straightforward, and to my mind, intuitive about the idea that entities matter insofar as they can experience pleasure or pain. But then you're right, we do come to this question of like, well, what about wild animal suffering? So, so Peter Singer has a discussion in Animal Liberation where he says, well, the empirical consequences would likely be significant unintended consequences. He gives the example of releasing rabbits into Australia as a means of, I can't remember exactly why they did it, but that certainly didn't work out very well. But I mean, so number one, that's not really a philosophical response. That's an empirical prediction. And I certainly agree that at a large scale, it would likely be disastrous if we were to intervene and start policing nature, as they call it. 
So, you know, so there's one view I've read, and this is very radical. Um, there's one of you I've read that said, you know, look, if someday we do have the power to take the suffering out of the nature, you know, we're talking like 10,000 years from now without destroying the environment, then, then it's not clear that it, that would be so, so bad to do. Now, I'm, not, I'm not sure about that view. I think that's pretty, pretty far out. We have more immediate practical questions to focus on. I think the other area where utilitarianism gets counterintuitive pretty quickly is when we think about questions related to bringing animals into existence. So most farm animals live miserable lives, but you might imagine some kind of farming that is not so miserable for them. Would we then be obliged to bring them into existence in order to increase overall happiness that way? And if we go that far, why not do the same thing with human beings, including human beings who are unlike animals and fully self-conscious and persons? And at that point, I just think I feel like I've kind of lost my lost my mooring and feel, no, I don't think we have those kinds of obligations. And I think that, to my mind, is a good reason not to be utilitarian. Much of the discussion in your article goes to the question of when a person becomes a true moral person for philosophical purposes, uh, when they have, I don't know the terms of art here, but sort of personhood in regard to philosophical analysis. Mm -hmm. It struck me as a... Um, if you'll forgive the term, a very binary way of looking at creatures. They, they either have moral personhood or they don't. A lot of us probably have some rough quasi-arithmetic idea in our head of how much personhood we assign to, say, our dog. You know, if there was a fire in my house and I ran outside and I saw one of my kids wasn't with me, uh, you know, I'd run inside to save my kid. I would also probably run inside to save my dog, but might be less inclined to do so and might be more discouraged from doing so if there were a, a risk of me dying or getting hurt. Is it a limiting factor in, in the moral philosophy you're talking about that it's sort of a, a one-zero binary typology in regard to whether someone gets moral personhood? So traditionally, the theories of moral standing that I draw on in my article it's true that traditionally they have been what are sometimes called two-level theories. There's sentience and there's personhood, and those are really the only two levels or stages of moral standing out there. Tangent, because most mollusks don't have any sentience, I think you tell people they can eat all the oysters and clams they want, right? Right. So there are people who do want to make distinctions within either of those two categories. And... It's especially acute given that nature is not, nature is not a binary. Nature is sort of a continuum of, of different abilities. And even human beings, when we go from day-old infants to adults, we're also on a spectrum in terms of our mental abilities and other things that make up personhood. So one way you could go, and one way some people do want to go, is to trade in the binary that you're referring to for a more, to use a jargon term, for a more scalar view of moral standing. I also have a chapter on this issue in my book, and it has attractive and unattractive features. The attractive aspect of it is it does, it does seem like there are cases where there can be at least some animals that seem to fall somewhere in between full-blown personhood, full-blown self-consciousness, and mere sentience. So, the way you could go is to say, yeah, there's this third in-between stage. But that's, that has its own defects. One is, why stop at three? Why not have four or five or potentially many more? And, and at some point, that just becomes 
so unwieldy that it becomes counterintuitive. But then there's this other problem, which is you could raise the same question just about persons. Why should we treat the most brilliant person who ever lived with the same degree of moral standing as an average, you know, small like me, you know, just say the Einsteins of the world before the Lamies. That way of thinking is very widely rejected today. To my mind, that rejection is a good thing. So I think we need to have a theory that takes seriously this idea that within personhood itself, we're already committed to some kind of view that says degrees of difference don't matter. There may be some room for a third category. I explore the pros and cons of that, but I, don't, I wouldn't want to go beyond three myself. But to take this back to your original question, to take these issues seriously, I don't think you actually need necessarily to sign on to the view that there's two and only two. You could go one of these other routes that I'm mentioning. It's just what's more prior and fundamental in my mind is that you take seriously the status of animals. And then we have to have a separate debate about how many stages of moral standing there really are. Andy Lamy, thank you so much for joining the Quillette podcast. Thanks, John. I enjoyed this. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.